All right. Well, good morning, Cedar Ridge. It's so good to be back here uh, with you. This is uh, this is Thanksgiving week, right? It's hard to believe. I, I didn't realize it till uh, actually till this morning. I was like, well, wow, this is actually Thanksgiving week. It's here. It came fast. Um, next time you see me, I'll probably be uh, about five pounds heavier. Uh, so it'll be full of turkey and uh, cranberry sauce. Uh, so hopefully you have a good uh, Thanksgiving uh, week as well. So if you haven't been here or if you're new to Cedar Ridge, we're in the middle of a series called Surprised by Love. It's really a journey through uh, Mark's gospel. And um, we've kind of reached the middle of, of the book of Mark, uh, Mark's gospel. We've reached the middle. And, and really this chapter that we're looking at this morning is kind of like a climax for the gospel. Um, so we've kind of reached the pinnacle, the, the central point of, of this gospel. And this morning, we're going to work our way through Mark chapter 8, verse 22, through Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 1. And at least in my Bible, this is broken up into four sections. And we're going to try to work our way through all four of these sections. So the sections that we see here are Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. And uh, that's in verse 22 through 26. Jesus declare, or Peter declares uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. That's in verse uh, 27 through 30. Jesus predicts his death. That's in verse 31 uh, through 33. And then the way of the cross. Jesus has this hard conversation about the way of the cross with his disciples in uh, Mark chapter 8, uh, verse 34 through 9, verse uh, 1. And so we're going to get to that uh, uh, that conversation that he has. But to be honest, we're not going to get as deeply into it as I would like to do uh, because of time. But um, let me just go ahead and say up front, there's uh, discussion questions out in the lobby. And, uh, and you can go to our website as well, crcc.org. And there's discussion questions there that kind of dive deeper into all that we're talking about uh, this morning. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this about Mark as we've kind of journeyed through it or if you've read Mark. Uh, yourself all the way through at, at any point in time, but Mark's gospel is jammed packed with miracle stories. In fact, Mark seems to love all these miracle stories. Um, he seems to want to include as many of them as possible in his gospel. In fact, Mark is uh, the most densely packed of all the gospels with miracle stories. Now, I like these stories too, if I'm being honest. I think for a couple of reasons. One is they're, they're just fun, uh, but, but two, I like them because they help me imagine a world that's more whole and healed in the midst of this world where we're daily coming face to face uh, with the brokenness and pain and seemingly impossible situations. Mark helps my imagination, at least, kind of run wild with what God is able uh, to do. And the people, though, at the center of these miracle stories, uh, they often find themselves out of options, um, having tried every imaginable solution, nowhere to turn for help. They're bound by the limits of their ability. They're prisoners of despair. They're totally given up hope. And I think we've all been there before, at least at some point in our lives, we'll find ourselves at a place where we have to come face to face uh, with our own weakness. And I think the question for all of us when we, when we get there, when we arrive at this hopeless place, is where do we turn for help? Right? Where do we turn for hope in this world? Now, as people of faith, we often find ourselves turning to God, praying, begging, pleading for God to step in and change the situation, to alter the outcome in some way, to alleviate our suffering. And I think this is a natural and normal human tendency, a human response to pain and suffering. 
you know, even people that don't have a spiritual practice find themselves turning to God and petitioning God for help in times of struggle when they've come to the limits of their ability, they've reached their own potential and their power to change a situation. Now, some church traditions will teach you that, um, that if you just have enough faith that God will intervene and God will work on your behalf and he'll work it out, sometimes even might be said the way you desire God to. But I can tell you firsthand um, that I've walked with many people through painful life situations, uh, some that just came up like a storm out of nowhere. And I've seen people walk through these situations with unwavering faith. And God didn't show up the way we hoped that he would, the way that we prayed that he would. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't intervene in human history, because I actually believe that God does. I just think it's important, though, as we read Mark's gospel, that we don't get so mesmerized by these miracle stories that we miss the message behind the miracle itself. Now, I could be wrong, but I don't think Mark is recording all these stories because he's trying to impress us, right? I don't think he's going for the wow effect. I don't think he wants us to walk away amazed and in awe of what Jesus is able to do. Like, I don't think that's what he's getting at there. And nor do I think the message behind the miracles is follow Jesus because of what he's able to do for you. Instead, I think the miracle stories, and particularly the one we're looking at this morning, uh, teaches us something much more profound about the life of faith. All right, so we're going to jump into this first section, this miracle story, this first section that we're looking at this morning, uh, right in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. It says, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Now, there's, there's only two miracle stories in Mark's gospel that aren't included in Matthew and Luke's gospel. And this is one of them. And my first reaction to that is, well, of course, Matthew and Luke left this story out because it's just disgusting. I mean, Jesus put spit on this guy's face in order to heal him. And, and maybe I'm being superficial, but when I read this story, like, I'm wondering, was that really necessary? Could Jesus not have just, like, put a dry hand on this guy like he did for everyone else that he healed in the gospel? Right? I, I, I probably, if I was writing the gospel, I probably would have left this story out, too. Now, many scholars will teach you. I think they're a little bit more um, mature, a little more rational, much more educated than I am. But many scholars will tell you that the reason why this story was not included in Matthew and Luke's gospel is because it appears that Jesus was unsuccessful at his first attempt. Now, maybe Matthew and Luke were trying to protect Jesus' record, or maybe they were worried that an unsuccessful attempt at healing this man might cause people to question his divine authority. Now, I don't really know why Matthew and Luke omitted this story, but I do know that the other story that they omitted 
also involved spit. Ruth talked about it last week in Mark chapter 7, verse 33. So you can make up your mind on that um, because I don't really know, but I'm just saying. Um, but to make matters worse, right? Um, it didn't work, the first attempt, right? So Jesus spit on this guy and then he wasn't healed. The blind man only received partial sight. But then Jesus tries again, and this time he leaves the spit out and just touches the man and heals him. And now when I'm reading this story, I'm wondering if the spit could have been involved, uh, um, avoided altogether. Um, but that's not the point. The guy is healed. It's an incredible story. He walks away seeing, and Jesus sends this guy home, not back into the village to beg people for money. It's incredible. All right, so if we move on to the next section, and, and uh, in, in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, um, in these verses, we see a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And then it feels like Mark has totally moved on from this story of Jesus healing the blind man. But we're going to return to it. So don't, uh, if you're like me, sometimes I hear stuff and then I just kind of like, it's almost like a dry erase board where I just kind of wipe it clean and I'm on to the next thing. And even though these are sections and even though we're moving on to the next section, this isn't the way it works. So please don't just wipe that story clean and be like, all right, we've hit that story past it. We're going to return to that story um, because I think Mark uses it intentionally to make a point. But in the second section in Mark chapter eight, verse 27, uh, this story, this section contains one of the more popular stories in the gospel. In fact, it's recorded in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel as well. At least some version of this story shows up in those other two gospels. So let's look at Mark chapter 8, verse 27. So Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So the disciples here are walking from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi, which is about a 25 mile walk. Um, in biblical times, that was probably about a day's journey in today's world where we don't walk in miles, we walk in feet. It's probably a little bit more than a day's journey. Um, but as they travel around these villages around the city, Jesus asked them a simple question. Who do people say I am? Right? Fairly easy to answer that question. There's no gotcha here. This isn't a trick question, although people might have been they may, I think the disciples possibly were thinking that. I might have been thinking that. It feels fairly simple. It's easy to rattle off what you've heard people say about Jesus. And so they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. Now, to me, this seems a little bit strange um, because John the Baptist and Elijah are both dead. So it's like either they believe in reincarnation, which that's not really likely because Jews didn't really believe in reincarnation, or they believe that the spirit of these guys was somehow alive in Jesus. Now, Mark doesn't record Jesus's response to the disciples' response to his question. He just moves on to the next question, and he says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Now, that's a much more personal question. Now, have you ever been in uh, maybe a group or a meeting of some sort 
maybe it was at work and maybe your manager posed a question to the group and um, and no one wanted to be the first to speak up. I kind of hate those moments. So you just kind of sit there in the silence, especially if you have a, um, somebody that's really okay with silence leading the group and they just let people sit there and just wait on somebody to respond. And there's this awkward side. That's, that's how I imagine this story going with Jesus and the disciples. He goes, hey, but how? what about you? 12 of those guys at least are there uh, and probably even a larger crowd of people. But, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And it's just this moment of silence. And then finally, Peter breaks the silence and says, you are the Messiah. Sounds like a fairly simple response. But in the first century Jewish community, the community this statement was loaded with meaning. Now, it's interesting the way this verse is translated uh, in different versions of the Bible. Um, so in some versions, it says, you are the Messiah, as it does in the NIV, the version that I, um, I use fairly often. Um, but in other versions, it says, you are the Christ. And maybe if you grew up in the church, you may have grown up hearing it that way. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. These two words, Christ and Messiah, they're actually synonyms. Uh, they actually mean the same thing, the anointed one. Uh, Christ actually comes from the Greek, um, and then Messiah comes from the Hebrew. Now, it's interesting, though, because the original language of Mark is, is, is Greek. Um, but the translators, at least of the NIV, chose to use the Hebrew word Messiah. Now, not to get too deep into, uh, into the weeds, but translators um, are constantly forced to make interpretive decisions when translating the Bible from the original language. And the translators of the NIV chose to use the word Messiah because they believed it better captured the meaning behind Peter's statement. You see, Peter was stating his belief that Jesus was the long-awaited fulfillment of God's plan. You see, for hundreds of years, the Jews had believed that God would send the Messiah who was written about in the Hebrew scriptures, and he would be sent to liberate them from the hand of their oppressors and establish a kingdom that was never going to end. And this messianic hope that they held dear and near to them had reached its pinnacle at the time of Jesus' ministry because the Jews were living under the oppression of the Roman Empire which was one of the most powerful and oppressive empires in the history of the world. And while the Jews, um, while the Jews uh, had some amount of freedom in the Roman world, um, their leaders knew that if they didn't keep their people in check or if a threat rose from within their community to the Roman rule, that the Roman empire would respond with unmitigated force and violence and, and severely oppress the Jewish people. And so at this time, at least in Jewish thinking, you know, there was only one power greater than the power of the Roman Empire. And that was the power of God, the creator of the universe. And the Jews believed that the God, the one who created the universe was their God, and that he had chosen them and formed them into a people and given them a name, Israel. And they believed that God had claimed them as his very own 
as was ex, uh, uh, evidenced in the Exodus story, in the book of Exodus, where he liberates them from slavery in Egypt and sets them free to the promised land. And then they believed that that God who they had come to know as the creator and their liberator had sent them into exile, Babylonian exile. If you read through the Hebrew scriptures, had sent them into exile because of their idolatry, kind of as a punishment for their idolatry, for them turning to other gods and nearly destroyed their nation. But as the narrative goes, they believe that God had not forgotten about them there, but that he redeemed them, restored them, returned them to their land. Ultimately, they resumed their identity as the chosen people of God. And this complex history that we read about, this origin story for the Jewish people was recorded in the Hebrew scriptures. And it was used to solidify their belief that God was not just the creator of the universe, but that God was the sovereign author of history. God was completely in control and that that God was on their side. Now, one of my favorite passages in the Hebrew scriptures that kind of captures his confidence in God, that God is in control, no matter what the situation looks like, is in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. Look at what it says. This is one of my favorite scriptures. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. I don't know. It just feels good. But listen to what it says. It says, though the fig tree does not bud and there's no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And so even though it was difficult to imagine a power that could conquer the Roman Empire, the Jewish people lived with an imagination that was formed by the Hebrew scriptures that taught them that the God who had delivered before would do it again. That the God who showed up for them in the past would show up again. And so they believed that God would send the Messiah to exercise political and military control and establish an eternal kingdom and they believe that all this power will be concentrated under one man anointed by God who would be the prophet, priest, and king of Israel. In fact, there's this apocryphal book, a book um, it's not included in most, uh, most Bibles. It's known as the uh, Psalms of Solomon, not to be confused with the Song of Solomon uh, that is in most Bibles, or the Book of Psalms, which is in most Bibles, but a book called the Psalms of Solomon. And um, it was likely written in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, kind of in a period where none of the scriptures that are in the Bible really came out of that, that time period. Um, and it's about maybe about 100 years before Jesus' ministry when this book was written. In the 17th uh, chapter of the Psalms of Solomon, kind of captures this messianic hope, what the people hoped that the Messiah would come and be like and do, kind of captures it as it had developed in the time leading up to Jesus' ministry. 
So, so listen to a little bit of what it says. It says, see, O Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, at the time known only to you, O God, that he may reign over Israel, your servant. Gird him with strength to shatter unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem of the nations that trample her down in destruction, to expel in wisdom and righteousness sinners from their the inheritance, to smash the sinner's pride like a potter's vessel, breaking into pieces with a rod of iron all their substance, to destroy the lawless nation by the word of his mouth, so that at his mere threat, nations flee before him to condemn sinners by the thoughts of their own heart. He shall gather in a holy people whom he shall lead in righteousness and he shall judge the tribes of the people set apart as holy by the Lord his God. And he shall not allow unrighteousness to lodge in their midst, nor anyone who knows wickedness to dwell with them for he shall know them to determine that they are children of God. Hmm. So when Peter says, you are the Messiah, I mean, there's a chance that he has this verse in mind. When he says, you are the Messiah, he's stating his hope that the long-awaited plan of God was being fulfilled in front of his eyes. He believes that he's witnessing the unfolding of history, the fulfillment of prophecy, a moment in time that will be remembered for all eternity. You know, and Peter's not, I mean, showing being a little bit gracious, Peter's not completely wrong. Jesus is the Messiah. He is God's anointed one. He is the one chosen by God. He is the one that God sent. He is the one they've been waiting for. But like the blind man in the previous section, Peter's not seeing clearly. His vision is still blurry. And I think Mark intentionally placed this story of the progressive healing of the blind man before the story of Peter's confession to make a point. I think he wants us to see that the journey from blindness to sight, or as it is with the disciples, the journey um, from spiritual blindness to enlightenment it's just not instantaneous. It does not happen overnight. Rather, it happens as we walk through life with Jesus. I mean, here we are in the middle of Mark's gospel, and Jesus is just now asking the disciples, who do you say I am? I mean, he didn't ask that at the beginning. That wasn't like, uh, um, um, uh, like a test of their faith before they could become disciples, right? We're, we're kind of far into the story. They've been following him. Some people would say for months, some people would say for, for almost a year or more, they've been following him. And Jesus is just now getting around to this question, who do you say I am? It doesn't even seem like Jesus expected them to have the right answer up until this point. And even at this point, having given up all, all their, their stuff, their livelihood before following Jesus and following Jesus, like literally walking with him, uh, living with him, uh, seeing all that he's done, the disciples still don't get it right. They still don't fully understand. And that's okay. Because faith is a journey. And it's okay to have faith 
before we have complete understanding. In fact, it's okay for your faith to seek understanding. You don't have to have all the answers before you decide to follow Jesus. And you might actually feel like you have all the answers, start following Jesus, and then realize that you don't. That's often a more likely course of action. You know, Peter didn't have it right. He thought Jesus was sent by God to deliver the Jews from the oppressive hand of the Roman Empire and establish an independent Jewish kingdom that would be even more powerful than the Roman Empire. But what Peter failed to see was that the plan of God was not to act in sync with the systems of this world, which rely on military and political power to steer the world to some divine end. Now, it's true. God was sending the Messiah. God did send the Messiah to declare good news to the poor and oppressed, to liberate people, to set prisoners free, to establish peace on earth. God did send the Messiah, but not wielding earthly power, but to bring peace through sacrificial, self-giving love. And that's one of the greatest paradoxes of the Christian faith. Peace doesn't come through power. Righteousness doesn't happen through a king's rule. Salvation and sanctification isn't the product of a political agenda. Rather, the world that God envisions is manifested through sacrificial, self-giving love. And I think that's why we got to be careful to reject ideologies that rely on earthly power to produce so-called divine or righteous ends. Because the plan of God has never been to use power to produce holy people. You can't oppress people into holiness or wholeness. It didn't work with Constantine and the Roman Empire. It will not work today in the American Empire. Because empires always, always rely on violence and oppression, walls and boundaries, money and military to produce quiet and compliant people, but they cannot produce holy people, the holy people of God. You see, and Jesus uses this moment with the disciples to teach them about the paradoxical plan of God. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly to them about this, and Jesus took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus, um, Peter took, sorry, I think I messed that up. He spoke plainly to them about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus had turned, or when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, notice in this text, I've always thought this was interesting. Uh, Notice in this text that it says that Peter took Jesus aside and (laughs) rebuked him. It takes a certain kind of person to do that. 
Like when I read this, I'm wondering, like, how did that act? Did he grab Jesus? Like when I hear took him aside, like did he grab Jesus over by the arm? It was like, come on over here, let's have a conversation about this. Um, what we do know about this is that Peter did this in plain view of the other disciples, because verse 33 makes it clear that the disciples were right there. So like, even though he, he might have taken him aside, like they didn't go away to some other room and like have a personal conversation, right? They just kind of stepped aside and, and Peter's there rebuking Jesus in plain view of the disciples. Because look back at verse 33, what it says. It says, but when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. They were right there. Like he turns and looks at the disciples and rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, I think as I read this text, I think Jesus looks at the other disciples when he's rebuking Peter, because it's not just a rebuke of Peter, but a rebuke of anyone else following Jesus while harboring hopes that he's going to establish some earthly kingdom that uses military power and political agendas to set up a Christian nation and try to produce holy people. And Jesus is rebuking Peter for that ideology, and he's calling it work, the work of Satan himself. And then Jesus takes time to re-educate the disciples. Look back at verse 31. It says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. In verse 32, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You see this word plainly here, that's used here is kind of misleading um, because it sounds like Jesus is just explaining it clearly to them. Um, but in the original language, that word carries the connotation of like uh, confidence and boldness. And so Jesus isn't just like, explaining it clearly, maybe with some analogies or something. Uh, he is confident. He's explaining it to them confidently, boldly, that this is the plan of God for his life. He's confident that suffering, rejection, and death is the will of God for his life. For Peter and the disciples, this was unfathomable. But when we listen to Jesus, this was inevitable because Jesus' whole being was dedicated to bringing peace through sacrificial, self-giving love. And this whole interaction between the disciples opens the door for Jesus to teach for the first time in Mark's gospel about the way of the cross. And that brings us to our fourth section that we're looking at this morning. Look at what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. It says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can someone or can anyone give in exchange for their soul? 
If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come in power. You see, Jesus is teaching about the cross and the role of the cross. Now, in our world, the role of the cross today is totally different than the role of the cross in the first century, the world that Jesus was speaking to. In fact, our modern culture is exposed to crosses mainly through uh, jewelry and tattoos. And um, in the biblical times, this just would not have been the case. You see, our world is comfortable wearing the cross, um, but we're not at all talk, comfortable talking about, even talking about uh, bearing the cross. We're hardwired to avoid suffering, hardship, and pain. I mean, I can speak for myself. I am hardwired to try to avoid suffering, hardship, and pain. We value comfort and ease, and we tend to avoid hard things. Now, I'm not saying that there's something wrong with you if you wear a cross or have one tattooed somewhere on your body. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I just want us to see that the commonness of the cross in our culture has caused us to associate it with a symbol of comfort and disassociate it from the dehumanization, the pain, the shame that the first century followers of Jesus would have associated it with. You see, the first followers of Christ didn't have this luxury to disassociate the cross from that pain and shame because even after the resurrection of Jesus, before the resurrection of Jesus, thousands of people were crucified. Even after the resurrection of Jesus, hundreds of Christians were crucified on the Roman cross. And so there was a good chance that you had a friend or family member who had been crucified. And so for the Jewish people, for the first century followers of Jesus, the cross was a complicated symbol that could not be untethered from its legacy of pain and suffering. And here Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. It's hard to hear that the way they would have heard it. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. You see, here Jesus is teaching that the path of suffering and hardship wasn't just the way that his life was going to pan out. He was teaching that this is the way of, of Christ, that this is the way of life for the disciples who would follow him. You know, there's so much to unpack here. And as I said, we don't really have time to dig into it. But I feel the need to say that the kind of suffering that Jesus is calling his disciples to here is the kind of suffering that has a redemptive end to it. It brings about a better world. 
a world that's more whole, more loving, more just, more equitable, more caring, more compassionate. Like Jesus isn't just saying life is going to be hard, although that's true, but that's not what Jesus is getting at here. Uh, Jesus isn't just saying life is going to be hard. That's just part of the human experience. It's not particular to the way of Jesus. And I also don't think uh, that Jesus is just talking about persecution here. You see, when we reduce um, Christian suffering to persecution, I think we often end up treating it, like looking for it, and treating it as if it's a stamp of approval on our faith. And that's not what Jesus is getting at here either. Now, is there persecution language in the Bible? Of course there is. But our Western world often misapplies this uh, to the experience of Christians who are just living in a more pluralistic, a more diverse society where Christians are merely losing our Christian majority. That's not persecution. I think what Jesus is getting at here by talking about self-denial, taking up the cross, is a posture, a way of life that does not place one's own comfort, one's own concerns first, but is willing to consider, to care about, to look after, to give oneself to the needs of others. A way of life that requires sacrifice, love, and often comes with a fair amount of pain and suffering. You see, Jesus uses the cross as a symbol of the way of life for his followers because it points to the kind of dedication to following Jesus that's required if we're actually going to follow Jesus and make a difference in this world. This is the climax of Mark's gospel. From this point forward, everything is headed towards the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, the next two chapters, Jesus predicts his suffering and death again, and the tone of the gospel begins to change as the reality of what it means to follow Jesus begins to sink in. Following Jesus means committing oneself to sacrificial, self-giving love. You know, every morning, every Sunday morning, we um, kind of end our time, at least message time, with a, a moment of reflection uh, to consider the scriptures that we heard and to ask, how might God be leading us? And the talk of the cross and the pain and suffering that following Jesus brings about is not something that immediately makes us happy or brings us great joy. Following Jesus is not an easy path or course to take. And it is a decision that daily we might have to reaffirm in our lives and ask, is this a course that I want to stay on? You know, as we read the scriptures, one of the things we see, though, is that God is making this world new, whole, 
bringing about peace. And while Peter, I believe, thought Jesus was coming with political and military power to bring about a certain kind of world, and he probably had a certain level of joy that he got to participate in that, I think the joy for us is that we get to participate in what God is doing in our midst, what God is doing today. And so while Jesus says, yeah, whoever wants to follow me must deny themselves and bear their cross, we do so with our eyes fixed on the joy set before us, knowing that God is doing something beyond what we can imagine. You know, during this time of response, and the band can come on up, and during this time of response, some people like to take communion. There's a table here and two tables at the side where you can gather around the table and you can remind yourself of the way of Jesus and what God is calling you to. Or you might want to gather in the back where there's a couple of prayer stations where you can spend time in prayer. Um, there's also racial justice stations at the side under along the side wall where you can spend time asking how God might be calling you to make the world a more just place. Or you may just like to sit where you are and do nothing, and that's totally okay. This is really just a moment for us to reflect on the scriptures we heard, how Jesus is at work in this world, and how God is calling us to join him. Mm -hmm.